0: Again, this comes back to, where else can you make this much of an impact in someone's life, serve the community, feel like you're doing something really good, and make great cash flow. Yeah, More than you would make if it was a traditional rental and it was paid off. Like yeah, they- I no longer have to wait 20 or 30 years.
1: Welcome to The Great Investor Podcast. podcast about real estate entrepreneurs, visionaries, and the stories behind the legacies they're creating. I'm your host, Rob Chavez. And on today's episode, I have Andrew Lamb from Vacaville, California. Now, Andrew has his real estate license, he owns a real estate team, he owns a brokerage, and he's an active investor in a very particular niche that when I learned about it, blew me away. And that niche is sober living homes. You see, in California, we all know real estate's super expensive. It's hard to get the cash flow you need to be able to pay for the asset. But Andrew specializes in a niche that creates just a ton of cash flow. So I'm going to encourage you to take out a piece of paper, a pen, because Andrew is about to unleash some knowledge upon you that is going to help you build massive wealth, cash flow, and ultimately help you create the income flip, which is when you have more cash flow coming in on a monthly basis than your expenses. And it helps you build financial freedom in the process. So listen up because I know you're going to enjoy Andrew Lamb. Grid. What is going on? Today, I've got Andrew Lamb with me from Vacaville, California. Just crazy, like Vacaville, right? Vacaville, like Calville is essentially what Vacaville is, right? Um, and Andrew uh, has been a friend of mine now for several years. And most recently, he's been doing some really interesting things. And so I wanted to share him with you guys today. Uh, and unpack a lot of what he's doing around sober living homes, right? Uh, But before we get into that, Andrew, here's a question for you. Who are you? Who are you?
0: Yeah. um, So first and foremost, I'm a husband. I'm a a dad. I've been married 12 years and have five daughters. Um. I'm the, the son of a single mom who was a pastor. So I grew up with really good values. I grew up on a military base. Uh, the first six years of my life, uh, my mom was a captain in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you won't hear me use bad language. It's just not part of who I am. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just somebody who I, I think is um, grounded in, in some solid values and want to share that with the world. Uh, I have a real estate team. I have, uh, you know, ownership in my my KW office. Uh, we started it back in 2016. And I've been in real estate 12 years as well.
1: Okay. How did you get into real estate?
0: Uh, I, was, I was a teacher. This was back in 2009. So I had graduated college from University of California, Davis. Pretty good school. But it was the, you know, bottom of the economy. Like the recession, it was terrible. People with PhDs couldn't get jobs. So I initially the only job I could get after sending out about 60 applications was being a janitor at my church. Um, but I, while vacuuming the entire church, which is pretty large, it seated a 1000 people while vacuuming while cleaning out offices, I was listening to podcasts. And um, MIT and Harvard had classes that were like, online for free. And I would listen to that stuff and just kind of build my business acumen. Um, ended up becoming a teacher after doing the leadership program at that church for about a year, ended up becoming a teacher at a very small, small startup school. Uh, the school was growing. So I actually started as a teaching assistant and ended up with my own class of third graders and fourth graders by the end of the year, because I had a degree. And at a private school, you can be a teacher without a teaching credential if you have a, um, a college degree. So just kind of uh, a lot happened at once and I had to adapt and figure it out but um, it was a really fun foundation. Andrew, what was, your, what was your
1: major? Did you say that?
0: No, so went in as a computer science major, mm-hmm. uh, actually had a scholarship offer from uh, the NSA and decided I didn't want to give them eight years of my life afterwards. Hmm. Um, but went to Morgan State University in Baltimore of all places on a scholarship. Um, and then, well, this ties into my journey. I ended up having to come back home the next semester uh, my my stepfather had cancer. He passed away. I needed to come home and basically work 30 to 40 hours a week to support my family at that point. My brother and my mom. Um, so you, but computer you, science and then uh, linguistics ended up being my final major. I changed majors.
1: Linguistics.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So how did you decide? I'm just curious, right? This is fascinating. How did you decide on linguistics?
0: Um, it was a time back, you know, I started college 2004. I'm older than I look. Uh, so it was a time when you know being a tech guy wasn't cool. You were in a basement. IT was in a cold room with servers, and I loved people, and I spoke other languages. I did five years of Spanish, three years of French. Went to France a couple of times, and I just wanted to be around people. And I knew business was the path for me, mm-hmm. and uh, I loved traveling the world. So I changed to something that allowed me to study that and study you know, language and the history of language and um, how to communicate better. That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: So did you end up graduating from from Davis?
0: I did. So I went to Morgan State University for one semester, transferred back to a uh, community college for about a year and a half, and then spent my last two years at uh, UC Davis.
1: Okay, very cool. I remember that was one of one of my options. My dad, I don't know if I ever told you, my dad like grew up in the Oakland area and oh um, uh, what was he always says he went to Berkeley? I think he took classes at Berkeley, but he graduated. I'll have to ask him. we graduated somewhere else right um, okay. but but for a long time, like I thought all the kind of like the California schools this was like where I wanted to go, but I yeah. ended up on on the exact opposite end, right on okay. the east Coast, Yep. okay, and so you um became a teacher and you yep. were teaching third and fourth grade? Yep. Okay. Um, what did that prepare you for?
0: Oh, it will. I had no formal training on how to do this, right? I just loved kids and I love to teach. Um, and the class kept growing and growing throughout the year because it was a private school and everyone wanted to send their kids there. So it taught me how to adapt how to teach like just the fundamentals of how to convey your concepts and like what you want to learn to the the simplest minds but also like the best sponges possible so they they were squirrely and they were loud and they would run around but they would capture so much information uh, mm-hmm. even in the midst of all that so it honestly prepared me for real estate And uh, <laughs> for sure I don't know people all the time um because it's just it's the same thing right dealing with with clients how do you explain something in the simplest terms so that they can grasp it and run with it And not like overcomplicate these things that are honestly really simple
1: Mm -hmm. so why did you decide to get out of that teaching
0: uh i got married in 2010 Mm -hmm. six months later we found out we were pregnant and i was making less than 30 grand a year working Mm -hmm. from 7 a.m to 6 p.m i was there in the morning uh to help kids get to school uh and get in their classes and kind of observe while they were on campus i was running the after school program to make some extra money um i did kindergarten pe in the middle of the day like i was doing so much and making so little and uh, my mm-hmm. wife was a transaction coordinator on a real estate team mm-hmm. so i ended up asking the, the team leader hey do you think i'd be good at the sales thing i had done door-to-door sales before i'd sold cable i had sold dry cleaning to your door like a delivery <laughs> service okay um, and if i can sell stuff knocking on your door at 6 30 at night when it's dark outside and i'm at 6 3 Big guy. Um I, I figured I could do pretty well in the middle of the day selling houses. So Yeah. Um Wow. He said, Yeah, let's do it. So by that summer, after my first year, I had my real estate license. And uh the first week I held an open house, met somebody, and the week later had them in contract on our home. So it just worked out.
1: And you're like, I'm off to the races. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So walk me through your progression as an agent. And then how your mind morphed into investments? Or maybe you entered in always thinking investments. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm curious.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, you know, for a long time, honestly, ignored the, the investing side. I knew I always wanted to invest. Um, I started an LLC to invest in 2009, 2010. I just didn't know what the heck I was doing. And it was honestly a really good time to buy, but everyone was scared. And there was no mm-hmm. capital that I could find. For someone as young as I was, I got into real estate when I was 24. Um, so I just sold. I did what I could do mm-hmm. to to survive. You know, that one sale made me feel like, oh, this is going to be easy. I didn't sell another house for a few months. Um, so it it was this process of let's figure out systems and models. I was not at Keller Williams. I was at another company for the first five years, and I was on my own. So I started mm-hmm. seeking out who across the country outside of my market is doing really well Um, and it connected me to Keller Williams agents who were you know thriving because of the shift book and just everything they had done in their businesses and they were so willing to share and I wasn't getting that in my office so I started connecting with people and networking um, and they would be like hey what's your email I'll just send you this I'll just send you that whatever and I'd implement it in my business to the point where 2013 uh, one month I sold like eight homes In a month and made more than i had ever made before and realized i didn't see my family in 2013 i I had a wife and two little girls um and i didn't see my family for an entire month because i was showing homes back to back to back to back all day long uh, not really listing based yet and i just decided i needed to to build a team so that's when that journey started um grew it pretty well ended up on a couple of stages uh, by 2016 And just decided, you know what, all those Keller Williams agents, there's something right about what they're doing. Let me start one in my area. So we brought my team over and actually started the the Keller Williams office we're in now.
1: Fascinating. And that's, I'm sure, a whole nother journey, right? Because it's learning the brokerage side of the business and the economics of that business compared to your team and all the rest. Um, So did you say you have four or five right now, little girls,
0: Five little girls now.
1: Five little girls? Yeah. Okay, will you keep trying for that boy? Is that what you were doing?
0: Not necessarily. Uh, I just kind of felt like, and my wife, like we just weren't done yet. I'm not going to look back when I'm 90 and say I wish I had fewer kids. Um, I I probably would have thought, man, I wish this room was a little bit more full. Like, I feel like we're missing someone. Mm. So we just kept going for it, and it just didn't work out. Apparently, the more you have of one sex, the odds actually lower that you'll have anything else really um it's not 50 50 each time uh and for whatever reason we got we got five girls and i'm okay with that i love being a girl dad
1: that's awesome man that's awesome okay so let's let's fast forward to what you're doing today right um you own the market center or a portion of the market center you have your team but over the course of your career, you, you you kind of started probably thinking to yourself, I've got to do investments, right? I've got to start yeah. investing. I have five little ones that I need to look after, right? And I my financial future. And um, I'm sure you started looking at lots of different types of investments, right? Um, and I find that most people that I talk to are normally just looking around where they live. So some start venturing out. But they focus on what they can do with their market, and every market there's a way to make money, and every market there's a way to lose money. Mm-hmm. Did you start focusing on investments in your market, or did you go outside the market? Or what did you what did you do? I'm curious. Yeah.
0: So I think I I had the same thought process as anyone else. I'm in California. It's very expensive, and even though I know the inventory, my thought process was I make a certain amount, I can maximize how much I make. Out of state. And I actually did start trying to buy out of state. Um, mm. My, my family, my mom's side is from North Carolina, had plenty of opportunity there. And then we actually almost bought an Airbnb in Indianapolis through uh, an, another KW agent there. The, it didn't appraise. So it didn't work out. Like we tried to get it to, to buy it and do a burr method. It just it didn't appraise for us. So we didn't buy it. Um, And I realized, and I even hired VAs, started trying to wholesale across the country, got these different lists and was spinning my wheels, ignoring the fact that the place I have the most knowledge, the best relationships, um, everything that could possibly work for me instead of against me is right here in my own backyard. Mm -hmm. So I I finally made the decision after a year of just spinning my wheels uh, and making nothing to just buy locally. And the Mm -hmm. first one I bought, was on market, it, I, I flipped a home on market. I knew the area, the agent had discounted it like 70 grand thinking there were foundation issues. I know in that particular area, it's not foundation, it's just some support jacks mm-hmm. that rust over. Um, so what they thought was 70,000 cost me $1,600 to fix and I made 60 grand in 90 days. Mm-hmm. And I thought I need to do more of the fix. <laughs> Average commission was 12,000 at the time 60 grand for doing honestly not much at all my contractor did everything um Mm -hmm. we only put 20 grand into the home it wasn't a major rehab like Mm. i i figured i needed to do more of that uh and then so there are a few progressions right so at first i was like okay not out of state in state in my backyard and then maybe i don't want to flip as much because i was buying uh, and flipping in an appreciating market when rates were below three percent, and I mm-hmm. thought there's got to be a way for me to hold these. And I connected with the private lender, same guy who who did the flips. And I said, "Hey, I know you've never done this before, but what if I refinance out instead of just flipping?" And he said, "Yeah, it's not our model, but if you think you can do it and you're buying a deal well enough, yeah, we'll do that." Um, so I did that. Sure. I, I. The first one I did that one on was uh, one of my own listings. And I think this is something real estate agents ignore, like always look to buy first. My clients uh, vacant house needed some work. They didn't wanna do the work and they priced it a little too high to begin with. Eventually some stuff was coming with tax changes in California. They wanted to get their money out of here, 1031 into another state. And they just said, let's drop the price and get it done. And I said, hey, at that price, they dropped it 50 grand at that price. It makes way more sense for me to buy it, not charge you a commission mm-hmm. versus you netting what you're going to net if you drop the price and still pay a commission. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a win-win. I'll buy it. I'll flip it. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's spent for everyone. And they said, yeah, let's do it. And I was surprised at how easy that was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just go in and have the conversation and say, this is what we're going to do. Full disclosure. These are the options. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. I then decided that I'm somebody who thinks, how can I most efficiently use this, this asset? I had experienced several abrupt changes in my life, right? My stepfather passed. Um, he died of cancer. It completely changed my world. Um, in 2018, I actually became the team leader of my Keller Williams office, but my mom and my grandmother had to get moved from North Carolina to California because they both, for several different reasons, had, had health issues. My grandmother ended up with has dementia. And my Mm -hmm. mom had like a series of five or six strokes. Mm -hmm. And the cost to take care of them far exceeded what they had. Mm -hmm. And so there's there were these key moments in my life where I realized I can have a rental property, but waiting 20 or 30 years for it to be paid off is not good enough. I made a plan to have 100 rental properties within four years. And I still thought that's a lot of work. I'm not going to be able to focus on anything else. Mm-hmm. I have a team, I have a brokerage, you mm-hmm. know, I have, I have a family, how am I going to do that? So that's where this idea of how do I use, um, how do I use this single family home to house more people, to provide more value? I think you get paid in proportion to the amount of value you provide to the marketplace.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. How do I maximize the use of this home in order to also increase the income that I'm going to receive? And uh, that's where this idea of Sober Living Homes came from.
1: Dude, I love that. It, it's You started asking yourself some really thought-provoking questions, right? To, and, and, you know, interestingly enough, we're going through that right now with my, my wife's uh, mom, who's 91. And my parents are 80, and my parents are in great health, but her mom is not. She's taking care of her mom. And I'm like, wow, this is really expensive, like really expensive. That people don't prepare, right? That this is really mm-hmm. expensive. And so, um, so what did you do? Did you Google? You're like, how do I maximize this? Were you talking this? Like, how did that yeah. come about?
0: So, I mean, I did look into Airbnb and, and you know, short-term rental, mid-term rental kind of things for for what I wanted to do. Seems like in California, especially, regulation is starting to happen a lot more there was some stuff going on with uh, people doing Airbnbs in our downtown area and causing a big uproar. So I figured that wasn't necessarily risk-free if I went that direction, plus we're not a destination. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm close to Napa, but we're not quite Napa. Um, Cowtown. So I just decided, you know, I've heard about this group home thing. I know somebody doing it in Arizona. Let me call and figure out how they're doing it. I called the places that were sending him people they wouldn't answer the phone and then come to find out they, they don't operate in California. So I figured, okay, I have to realize, I have to learn who's doing this in my area. So instead of how I started asking, okay, who do I need to talk with that knows who I need to know and can introduce me and, and be a warm referral, all of that. So I just called our local shelter. Like I asked around, someone said, Oh, you need to talk with this person. Her name is Colleen. Um, So I called the shelter, got introduced to the director, which is this lady. And she runs this program called Housing First, which is a HUD program. It's national. uh, Different regions have it. And she basically runs the meeting and all the committees for um, transitional housing and homelessness and, and all of that stuff. So she was like, yeah, we do have a use for a single family home. That's what I asked her. Do you have a use for a single family home? She introduces me to this whole world of uh, sober living, which is a niche of group homes. Well, and she, she knows... Dude,
1: I love I love that. I love that. I love just that because it's like you just ask the question, right? You picked up the phone, you called, and you just ask the question. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and she probably, interestingly enough, she's probably like, they probably have a big need. I would imagine there's probably a big need, right?
0: Yeah. it's It's huge. So there's not enough homes. Um, I was underquoted on how much it could actually make. And she's like, oh, they're gouging people at $800 a month. And I'm like, $800 per person a month. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if I charge 600, like I'd still be way better than it's probably three times, you know, the cash flow of a traditional rental. Uh, it ended up being much more lucrative. But um I started, I have five of them now in my city of Vacaville and we could add another. Like it's a big need. And it's the reason why we've been able to continue growing. So let's unpack. What
1: is sober living? Like a sober living? What is that?
0: So let's start first with group home. I think Mm -hmm. that's the big, broad term. Um, There's many different kinds. You can house, you know, there's battered women's shelters, domestic violence, there's veterans. Like there's all kinds of groups of people and demographics you can serve. Um, Sober living, I have found to be the biggest need in a growing, it's a growing population. Like there's there's more and more people, unfortunately, getting on drugs and all. And there's a lot of legislation and funds going towards it. So I just decided, especially in California in 2014, there was a proposition that passed that basically reclassified everything that was a kind of an individual drug offense, like you only had enough in your possession for yourself, you weren't looking to deal or anything like that. They were no longer felonies, they changed them to misdemeanors so that they can redirect the funds of imprisoning those people uh, from imprisoning them to outpatient treatment, and sober housing. And they kind of designated this term sober living environment, which is what my homes are. Interesting. Uh, so there is a flow of money specifically to house these people, which is why 99% of our people are in a county program. Um. So that's why I chose sober living. I just think it's it's a big need. It's classified. Also, if, if you're in recovery, it's considered a mental health diagnosis now, instead of, you know, a crime. So there's just a lot of things that protect the the people who are in sober living homes so much so that, you know, the government can't even come in and tell you not to open up. There's no licenses, there's no certifications needed. It's a protected class of people living inside the homes and the home itself can be considered protected. There was actually a, uh, just last month, the the DOJ, the United States um, Justice Department said that a a city in Illinois had no right to block a sober living home from opening because of uh, federal equal housing laws and the fact that everyone in there was a protected class and the city actually had to pay the operator $800,000 in damages.
1: Wow, wow.
0: There's nothing to stop you from opening up a home like this and serving the community and providing housing.
1: Okay, Andrew, if I want to open up a home like this, I'm about to buy a house. And I'm just, Mm -hmm. I literally just, I grabbed a pen because I was like, I have a house that I think is probably perfect for this, right? That I'm about to buy on Friday. And the numbers are good the way they are already. um, But the numbers, I think, could look completely different. And so... What should I know, right? Like, help help, us, help me kind of understand this, right? Um, what should I know? What I don't know if you have a presentation for it or anything like that, but, you know, like, just tell me.
0: Yeah. Uh, so definitely the location matters. It needs to be um, not in a super rural area, but close to public transportation, close to stores. A lot of the people in our homes do not have a car. Uh, they need to get to a bus so that they can get to their probation appointments or their outpatient treatment. Um, or to a hospital where they might get an injection once a month, things like that. Um, So all of that matters. Um, Also, I tend to go with four bed or bigger. I like single stories. We do cover the utilities, so it keeps the cost down. Um, Although we do have one two-story. It was just a great deal. Um, And then your relationships matter more than anything. I have talked to several people in my local area who have opened homes like this, They went to a course that told them about group homes, they said, I want to do this. And they didn't lead with the relationships. And they've been empty for a couple of months, two or three months. And it it does start there. It's a people business, the people you're serving, but also the people who are sending them to you. And so I kind of have a framework uh, that I call read, which is Mm -hmm. research the market, research, who are the programs who's in the the, also call it the continuum of care to get people from from homelessness to housed. Um, Google that for your area. Learn who those people are, who are on the committees. Uh, and then call them, engage. So research who it is, engage them. Ask and add value is A. Um, ask a ton of questions as much as possible. How do you pay? Who's in your program? How many people are in the program? As, as much information as you can get. And add value. How can I help you? What do you need? What don't you have right now? And then D would be determine your differentiator. What's going to be your unique value proposition to those people so that they do remember you and start to send you all the people they can think of. And for us, it was twofold. Um, we were told that you know women are really tough because there's a little bit more drama when you're housing women mm. versus men. So we opened a women's home as our third home. And we also allowed for children, a lot of people were avoiding children saying it's too much of a liability. I was raised by a single mom. It's very possible I could have ended up in a home like this if things went sideways when I was younger. So I always wanted to make a place for single parents in the master bedroom so they could have their own ba- bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um So opening up having those two key things made us completely different and we filled up very quickly. And after our second or third home became the place that the county would send people. Like just like immediately, they knew we'd have a bed. They knew we were good with people. Um, And then we also faked up every single home. So everything I I have, I bought, I fixed up, it looks beautiful, when the case managers come, they're like, oh my gosh, can I rent this? Can I live here? Do you have another for me? Uh, So they know we're really taking care of our homes and our people.
1: Does it require a lot of
0: heavy management? Yes and no. If you have systems in place and if you intake properly and you're asking the right questions, what's your drug of choice? How long have you been clean? How long have you been out? Like mm-hmm. Some people do come from jail or from residential treatment or from prison. Uh, once we started asking the right questions, it became very easy to manage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we weren't asking the right questions, there'd be some people straight out of prison. They would clear the entire house just scaring people off. Um, depending on the person. It's not always the case, but a couple of times it happened. We went from a full house to an empty house because no one wanted to be there with this guy. Um, So I think that really matters. But once we nailed that down, it's a, I mean, it's super simple. I have a leader inside of each home who lives there. We get some special privileges. They report back to me. They're my eyes and ears. And now I have one employee who manages all seven of our homes. Um, We grew to seven in about 18 months. And... She does everything, so literally at this point, I don't even need to go to the houses. I get a text message. we check in once a week. Um, it's really simple for me it's completely it's mostly passive, and there's still an hour or two fully. What
1: about technology how are you use How are you leveraging technology?
0: Yeah, uh, I already use technology in my real estate business, so we we use callrail and I set up just mm. a specific number to track all the referrals that we're getting, record those phone calls, you know have some analytics around that uh it, it rings my house manager my program director is what i call her uh, her name is jessica and then it rings me if she doesn't answer so we're never missing calls we're never missing opportunities um it also transcribes everything
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then we have keypads. so we use um, quick set locks on every single house so that instead of having to meet someone there i can just text them a door code and then as soon as they move out i can disable the door code for my phone or for my computer so really yeah. simple. I don't need to deal with keys or anything like that. Um, just mm-hmm. like a real estate office, right? We don't want to re-key every time someone leaves. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we have ring cameras in every single house. So I have basically all the the entrances and exits covered. Nothing on bathrooms, just the public spaces. And then a mm-hmm. kitchen to make sure no one's stealing food. Um, but it's a pretty simple setup once you have those systems in place. Like I don't need to run around anymore. Um, it's It's pretty automated at this point.
1: Actually, let's go back to that whole making sure that nobody steals food. Cause I guess that's a de- that's a thing, right? It's like, yeah, groceries are purchased. Maybe people would have their own little cubbies. Do they have locks on the cubbies? Have you guys got that far or
0: so in the pantries? So we typically do have two refrigerators because there's eight or nine people per house. Mm. Um, so we do have um, two people to yeah. a room, essentially two people to a room in the master, which is bigger. We'll typically have maybe a third bed. Um, or there's we have another house that has an upstairs that's really big room I think we have three or four in there um, but yeah it's we have labels and then they get a designated spot to put their food we have a great partnership with uh, a food bank locally so literally like we can go there once a week they get everything that they need and and bring it back so they come they meet us there I'm always there present they grab what they need, and so they don't have to use their EBT card, which is their food stamps. They can just get as much food, produce, dairy, um, meat, all, all, everything they need. We don't want to provide that necessarily on our own. But in California, if you provide anything besides housing and providing other services, then you do need a license. Hmm. So we mostly just do housing and utilities. And then we we partner with others for other uh, services, although we're starting a nonprofit now to pr- to provide some other things.
1: Okay. And I would imagine you have some house rules associated. Yes, with, you know are there like, <laughs> but what are some of those rules? Like lights out at a certain time. Like you know, yes. uh, this is do you get to shower. I mean, like what? How extensive are the rules?
0: Right. Yep. So it's it's pretty extensive now because every time something has happened, we've added a rule. Yes. So it's a living, breathing document. Um. Yeah. We have we have a curfew. We have lights out time. Like the kitchens close after eight p.m um lights off after 11 except on the weekends and it's 12. um if you have you know a crazy work schedule and you work nights send our house manager your your work schedule so we know what's going on but what's cool about our keypads is we can actually disable the locks after midnight so we know if someone's breaking curfew Mm -hmm. like they put in their code we see it was an invalid access attempt we can have a conversation about it so again this technology really just does all the heavy lifting for us um but yeah, it's no violence, no weapons, no threats of violence. And be a good roommate. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of, of, it's two pages worth of things, but it's basically common sense. Be a good roommate. How long can somebody stay at your house? As long as they need to. It's transitional, but honestly, that typically means one to two years. Um, mm-hmm. They're typically in a program where someone else is paying for them to be there so that they can work and save up. And then be able to move out in our area kind of a two bed one bath apartment now starts around twenty three twenty four hundred dollars a month for an apartment. our average rent's about $3,200 home. They just don't make that much if you're on minimum wage and you like you mm-hmm. have a felony um, not everyone has legal issues or problems with uh you know they don't have a rap sheet uh, but some do and it's it makes it difficult so yeah we don't have a hard stop.
1: Do you do credit checks and background checks? No. No. Okay.
0: No. Yeah. We don't only because it's, it's, if you have gone down the rabbit hole of of being in rehab several times and, and just all that, t- that typically entails, you usually don't have good credit. Um, yeah. Part of why they can't get an apartment as well mm-hmm. or a, rent a house. So we're kind of that place that will have a lot of grace for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and just say you know let's take this on a weekly or monthly basis
1: okay and and if somebody is breaking the rules do you contact the case is there like a case manager or a- yeah yeah okay.
0: so so that is the nice thing of most of our people being in some kind of county program or outpatient treatment they do have a case manager and and someone who takes on all that responsibility of the treatment which is why we can just provide housing and be fine mm-hmm. um and so we can go to them and say hey this is what's going on or if it's probation hey PO or they actually have a social worker now a lot of departments are are learning how this works and they're bringing in social workers to help with the housing um and the mental health side so we could reach out and so, just say this is an issue that's been going on or they failed a drug test or you know they're i caught someone with a with an assault rifle they tried to sneak it behind their back on one of the cameras and uh I sent it to his PO and three days later, we had a sheriff raid and he, they found it in his car and he we went back to jail and never, ever came back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he violated his probation. And in that case, like, I'm not going to go over there and confront the guy. I'm just sending mm-hmm. it to the proper authorities and they took care of him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to go there like, hey, let me see that assault rifle. Yeah.
0: Correct. Yep. 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 But what's crazy. crazy is there's, there's people living these dual lives because he's, he seemed like the nicest, sweetest guy. You just also happened to still be a 42-year-old gangbanger actively gangbanging.
1: Yeah, it's just wild. Interesting. So somebody that that does this, I would imagine that a lot of the reason that they might do it is because there's some passion around, around helping as well. Like, yes, it's good economically, right? But it's also a lot of work. Like, I'm hearing a lot of, like, weird late-night calls that could happen. Oh, yeah right? Some, some, some things I've never dealt with before, right. Kind of happening. Yep. Um, and so of course you just adjust and you figure that stuff out, but there's also got to be a passion around that, right? Yes. I would imagine.
0: Yeah. So for me, it, it is about providing space for people to make mistakes and giving them grace, uh, so if someone, you know, if they do have a dirty drug test they're we allow them to go to detox and get clean. Typically, it's medically assisted treatment to come down off of whatever they were on. And then when they're clean, they can come back, we're providing that space for them. It's part of like relapsing is kind of part of recovery. Um, there's kind of a limit to that, like, but typically we found we for providing a safe, clean environment, and we're showing that we trust them. They, um, they live up to that, and and they get better. So I do love people. My house manager loves people. She's five years in recovery herself. She's lived in houses like this. Uh, she spends way more time than she really needs to serving the community uh, and mm-hmm. showing up in NA and AA meetings. So you're going to have to, in order to do this long-term, you have to have a heart for people. Or you're going to be like, why am I doing this?
1: Now, does she live in one of the houses? Is that what you said?
0: She doesn't. She has in the okay. past. Um, she yeah. actually recently opened up her own home like this. Which I fully support because she's Mm -hmm. going after high-risk females like she was.
1: I could see that. It it could be a calling, right? Mm -hmm. I I could see that. Um, So then you pay a salary to somebody like that, right?
0: A salary and a percent of profit to keep the base salary low. Got it.
1: Got it. That makes sense. Keep incentives uh, aligned. Okay, what about insurance? Just regular insurance with a blanket? I think I had asked you that before. Um, Yep.
0: Um, regular uh, landlord insurance, because we own. You can do this by renting as well, but then you would probably want some standard commercial liability insurance if you're going to be renting in your business name. But we own. And uh, regular landlord insurance and an umbrella policy is really all we need. Okay. And we don't have kids who are just kids. like We have kids with their parents, so we don't have any additional liability that the parent takes responsibility for their child.
1: Got it they sign some kind of lease before they enter into the house.
0: Yeah, this is like, the best thing that people don't know about, we have them sign a license agreement, they don't sign a lease. They have a license to a bed as long as they follow our rules, as long as if they break a rule, and we no longer want them there for whatever reason, up to our discretion, um, we're pretty lenient, but it's, it's our discretion, they have to move immediately, they don't have tenants rights. So I've mm-hmm. never had to evict anybody. And in California, that's a big deal. We're a very tenant-friendly state. But
1: mm-hmm. I've
0: had police officers come and, and remove people without an eviction, just simply by saying, we're a sober living home. Here's the paperwork that shows they have a license, not a lease. So we've automated that process too. One other technology piece I didn't mention is we have a sober living software that has some automated forms where they've taken our paper forms and they've digitized it. So I text the link to the client. They fill it out sign it on their phone it comes back to me automatically puts them into our system as admitted and then I can I have that and we never had to meet we never had to have them hand sign anything Um, so we get that license agreement every single time
1: fascinating fascinating um what am I not asking you that I should be asking you about this process
0: um I realized that I've done we've grown quickly, you know, seven, seven properties and, and 60 or so people that we house in less than two years. There's a lot that I've learned that I know that I don't, that, that I didn't have written down or that I just did naturally because I have other businesses and I'm like, oh, well, that's what we do there. Let's do it here. Um, so I'm still discovering all the things that should be asked because I just kind of <laughs> ran and went after it. It's who I am. Um, oh, so here's, here's something. Uh, how lucrative is it? If you're really going to help people and you do have a heart for them, what's the payoff? And I think there is this idea of it 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 checks all the boxes of it's great income, but it's also purpose and passion. Like literally daily we're we're being told we're we're saving people's lives. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for having me here. I have a lady who has four boys and they were living in their car. And mm-hmm. now they're living in like one of the additional units at one of our properties, two bed, mm-hmm. one bath. Um and they're housed, and they're, she's so thankful. Um, I have, you know, a house with three single parents. A guy has four little girls that were living in a motel. And the, the the county vouchers, the program stopped. It only allows 14 days. He would have been homeless, and he gets to live in in one of our homes. So, the, like, it just brings joy to my heart to be able to do that. But also, you know, there's a house that we had that was my first house ever. We converted it into this. It was a traditional rental making $600 a month. It's now, I looked at the math, it's now making $7,000 a month cash flow. And it's not even completely full.
1: (laughs) That's Uh, wild. That's wild. And it's not even completely full. Wow.
0: Yeah, it, it could go higher. So there are really cool things you can do. And again, this comes back to... Where else can you make this much of an impact in someone's life, serve the community, feel like you're doing something really good, and make great cash flow? Yeah. More than you would make if it was a traditional rental and it was paid off. Like, I no longer have to wait 20 or 30 years.
1: Yeah, the truth is, with interest rates, where they are and where they're going, right, you've got to get creative about the different ways that you can... Extract value from an asset and housing. There's just a tremendous shortage, right, of affordable uh, affordable housing in our area. And so, yeah, um, you know, so you saw a lot of people say, "Oh, I could convert this property to an Airbnb in the markets where they could." And now, instead of it being two thousand a month, you can collect five thousand a month, right? That just kind of makes those numbers work. So, this is an additional way to be able to do that. It's a business, right? Um, yeah, I would imagine each property is in its own LLC or do you keep Um, Do you have like a cluster
0: so I had them in a a cluster because if you have you don't necessarily need its own LLC if you have debt on it because if someone sued you like the bank's gonna get paid first anyway so you have limited exposure your equity is the only thing exposed Um, so now that we have all the equity that we've amassed over the last couple of years of the market going up we're looking at that I have them in my trust I had them in an LLC previously. I actually just moved them to my trust because we shut down that LLC. It was out of the state. Um, and now we're looking at some different strategies moving forward because, I mean, my gross rents this year might exceed seven figures. And I got to figure that out. Hey, know. dude,
1: that's crazy. So so what do you, you know, when I, I believe, and this is, you know, just my opinion, um, but I think it's backed by anybody that's ever done anything at a super high level is that when you find something that's working, right, you just blueprint it. You just start stumping it, right? did mm-hmm. uh, You know, Gary talks about doing the one thing, that by doing that makes everything else easier or unnecessary, right, in the book The One Thing, which, yep. you know, I believe that when you find something like that, sometimes what it does is it opens up your eyes to kind of like value and effort, right? You can work really hard in one area, and grind, barely make anything, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Or you
1: can, you know, explore a different area where there's just this massive needed value and it's all of a sudden like your effort gets rewarded disproportionately. And when you find something like that, it's like, okay, I just need to do more of this, which means less of that, right? Mm -hmm. Which then makes some hard discussions happen in your own brain about where do you put your time, you know, where do you focus effort? Um, but but also like how do you scale this thing, right? Like how do yeah. you do it so that it's not seven and you capped at it seven. It's like, how do I do this? And I do seven hundred or you know, whatever, whatever the number is, right? Yep. Not that you not that you need to, right? You don't need to do that, but
0: yep. yeah, it's uh I've definitely had that conversation. Um and I've had thankfully coaches in my life who have really pushed and said, why aren't you focusing more on this? Mm-hmm. Um, so part of why we're even talking about this is because of some pushing and prodding from people in my life who care about me and want to see me actually make a difference in the world um, to stop focusing on like just this thing, which has been real estate sales for a very long time mm-hmm. and, and really focus on, well, what's building wealth and what's changing lives? Mm-hmm. So I've thought through now, okay, how do we go from seven properties to 70? And then potentially 700. Who do I need to partner with to do that? Cause mm-hmm. honestly, it is capital. Capital is a constraint. 7%, 8% rates, especially if you're doing a DSCR type of loan, 8%. Mm-hmm. That's not fun. <laughs> it went from, you know, $2,000 a month payments to $3,500, $4,000 a month payments. Um, we still have with this type of specialty tenant, we still cash flow, but it's just not as much. And so it increases the risk. Um, I've looked at, you know, maybe potentially one day we bundle these together and sell to a hedge fund. What does that exit look like? What kind of multiple? Cause now it's not just the real estate. It's this business that's just kicking off cash. So they're all conversations I'm talking through. But at the end of the day, I think it does mean I probably need to step out of my sales business mm-hmm. and really put the investor head on. I thought this would be passive. I just have two or three of them and now it really makes sense to make it my active thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the evolution, right? Of of as you go kind of through this, you know, what what I call seven levels of just wealth building, right? It's not necessarily wealth is defined so many different ways. Like wealth is health, wealth is impact, wealth is, you know, passive income. There's a lot to wealth, right? Relationships, all the rest. And you start going on this journey, and in the beginning, there's this, there's this. I need to to create active income type of journey and then hopefully what happens is you you start becoming a business person some people never do but you know you become a business person and you start asking yourself how do i actually create systems and models in order to get back my time because otherwise you'll do the eight deals a month you know and not work 24 7 like you did and then something breaks like a relationship Mm -hmm. breaks family breaks something breaks so you've got to convert it to like a business um and then you go on this investment journey and that investment journey then takes you into other avenues and you got to decide, okay, can I can I turn my agent practice purely as an agent business? And, and, and am I okay if it doesn't work out, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. And and some people are like, yeah, that's fine because the, this opportunity on, on this other side is so much bigger. But there's a lot of fear around that. So let me just like, first and foremost, like, congratulate you, right? I think it's awesome what you're doing. Thank I you. really do. Um, and then also encourage you, like so many are encouraging you, that that um, especially if you're going to find, like if you wanted to keep that age of practice going, it, it is about who, not how, right? Finding the right people that they then see you as the uh, person that they can grow into. And you give a young Andrew Lamb an uh, opportunity to, to build their thing in that and then learn what you do and you just bring people alongside you, which is a yep. lot of what we've done within our business, right? It's like, okay, how do we just keep opening up new offices and giving people opportunity? And there's equal opportunity, unequal reward, right? In that respect. Um, and then I'm excited to see where this journey is going to take you, right? Yeah. So, capital that's important, right? To keep this. Yep. How are you, how are you thinking you might finance this with, you know, uh, we're going through this exercise right now because we're buying a lot of sub two deals and it requires a lot of equity. And, yeah. um, cause you don't want to burr out of them. Otherwise there's no purpose of doing Yes.
0: Nothing. No point. Yep. Right.
1: There's no point. So there's, there's this capital requirement that's needed. And you know, one is, okay, well, we bring in partners that, that are going to be capital partners. We put in some money and they put in some money, but eventually we run out of money, right? At, what, at one point, we just run out of cash. So it's like, yeah, do we start a fund? You know, do we, I, I'm sure these are all questions that you're asking yourself.
0: Yeah, I, I went down that path. Thankfully, I'm, I'm in a group of guys, a mastermind, who a ton of them have funds. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was able to, to talk to somebody who runs like a $100 million fund. Hey, what would you do? And he's like, well, if you only need and for us, like I would like to use delayed financing, which is basically just you purchase it and it's a Fannie and Freddie product. Um, They allow you to pull out everything that you had on the closing statement. So you can actually put your your closing funds and your rehab on the closing statement and pull out up to 80% LTV and they will base it on the appraisal after the repairs. And it's just as if you purchased it. So you don't need to refi. You don't need to wait for, you know, six months of seasoning. You can immediately, once that work is done, turn around, pull your cash out, and do it again. So if we can accomplish that with the local credit union, I only need a couple million and I can do three homes a month. We're buying around 400. Once we're done with the work, which typically costs us 40 to 50, uh, in six weeks, we've built in 150 to 200,000 in equity. We can refi easily at 80% LTV. Um, and get so all your money back way to out. do it. Yep, and then reuse it, reuse it. And even if we have to leave ten or fifteen thousand in, if I have two million and we're cash blowing the way we do on these properties, mm-hmm. I can easily pay back my investors. Mm. And after doing this on let's call it ten or fifteen homes, which will kind of be the first tranche that we're trying, um, then we might just be able to do bank financing at that point because we have everything happening. And I now have two years of historics on my current portfolio of seven. That's been the issue initially just trying to do everything the way you've been doing it. There's another question you didn't ask that I, I need to remember mm-hmm. for next time. Financing's hard when you don't have long-term leases. And this mm-hmm. is very short-term transitional. So, convince, like DSCR has been the only way mm-hmm. to really do these, which when it was 3.5%, that was easy, but now it's doubled. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm facing that with our, our Airbnbs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the answer is, you know, we're getting private funds or hard money funds, to, to do the initial work or to, to buy it and do the initial work and then we start getting quoted eight and a half percent right mm-hmm. two points um but they're like listen if you could show a year of seasoning then right there the, the rates change significantly mm-hmm. right they're still expensive but not not as crazy um so what is this delayed financing like why haven't I heard of delayed financing
0: yeah so, um it's just something people don't know about. You even call up loan officers and they're like, I don't know what this is. So I've learned, and this is just part of me being a, a 12-year vet in real estate, I've learned to know loans and guidelines better than some loan officers. <laughs> and so if I talk to somebody who doesn't know it, I will literally send them the the guidelines. It's online. Uh, You can find it. And say, this is what it is. Do you have an investor that will do it? And then they'll go and find it. Um, Or they'll ask their like back-end loan support. Hey, is this possible? And then they're told yes. So... I heard about it from some people in North Carolina and there's been, I think one or two bigger pockets podcasts about this specific thing where, yeah, it's Fannie and Freddie. As long as you qualify, you can pull out all of your invested capital and it's treated like a purchase, even though you've already bought it. The, the, the one thing is it cannot have a first lien. That's why if you buy with private money who's in first position, you can't do it. They want to know that it's cash and it's unencumbered. There's no lien and mm. then they'll pull out as everything you put in.
1: Got it. So wait, so it, it is an all cash product to pull your money back out.
0: Got it. Yeah.
1: Okay. And that's why that's we're great. raising yep.
0: the cash as basically it's an LLC with just four or five guys. We have less than 10 people from what I'm told, not an SEC attorney, but if you have less than 10 people who raise the funds, they're all accredited investors. You don't need a PPM or all this stuff you would typically do for a fund. So it'll save us a lot of money and allow us to pivot. If we didn't want to do sober living, we wanted to go to midterm rentals, change things up, we totally could. With the funds, mm. you typically can't.
1: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Two important things right there for us Yeah. To know. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to go Google that so I can learn a little bit more about it. There was also something you said early, and I want to make sure I don't forget okay, because you said it, and then I was like, okay, I got to make sure that I write that down. You said Google something in your local area to find out. But what was
0: that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, oddly enough, I just started doing this for people. You don't have the time or the energy. Um, but Google transition, transitional housing and continuum of care. So it's like continuum of care, your county name. Google that. And you typically will come across... A whole slew of people who are actively working with the community that you're looking to serve. Wow. If it's overliving or transitional housing, like reentry type of housing, they're coming from jail, homelessness, or or rehab.
1: And, and who would you say is the main point of contact? Right, like in your area, you got connected with somebody. Yep. Who is the main point of contact
0: to call? Mine happened to be the Housing First director. She's no longer in that role, but she was the, the chair of that last year, or, or when did I start 2021? Um, so she just she just happened to know everybody. But you can see the the meeting minutes, the agendas, like you can see the people involved, you can get phone numbers, email addresses. Um, and that's the best place to start. If you just want to get connected, you can attend the meeting, a lot of them are still on zoom. Uh, so it's easy to attend the meeting when it's coming up. Uh, and just, you know, <laughs> Tell people your story. Let them know what you're trying to do. Well, I, I love,
1: by the way, um, just kind of the tips. Right off the bat, you said, you know, location matters. And the house that I was thinking about, eh, right, based on the location, eh. no access to metro, no access to uh, you know, to to I guess easy transportation or stores. So that that would pose a problem there. Yeah. Right. The area that we were buying some properties uh, are a little bit more rural, but there are places in town that could work. So we'll see.
0: Yeah. I have one that's honestly on a street that most people wouldn't want to be on. It's a very public, busy street. And that makes it perfect for something like this because they have easy access to everything and we're getting great cash flow in a home that might not rates very well because it's such a busy street.
1: That's, exa- that's exactly what I was thinking. This, this one property that I have in mind is on a double yellow line. And normally I never buy on a double yellow line, but the financing, the underlying financing is so attractive that we're going to buy it. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I was thinking. This opens up the market for the types of properties you could buy. And those houses typically sell for less. They have a harder time to sell, just in general. Yeah. But if you look at the property slightly differently that it opens up what it's worth to you. Right. So that's interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. And as long as you're okay with collecting high cash flow now and potentially not maximizing this for sale value later, if you're just if you're playing the whole long term, it's totally sure. fine.
1: Well, long term. Long term everything's just gonna rise, right? Mm-hmm. Uh with with inflation. So let's see what happens with interest rates and inflation. right? that's the kind yes. of like the right. Yeah.
0: Um, I do think, I hope, I pray that interest rates will, at the end of this year, go down and we can refinance some of these. Um, but if it doesn't, we're we're still fine.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think give us a couple years. Uh, I think, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, Andrew, thank you so much, dude. This has been an education, and also just getting to know you a little bit more. That's cool. Like I, I, I enjoy that. Um, if anybody wants to follow you? What's your Instagram handle?
0: Yeah, it's the Andrew lamb. So at the Andrew lamb. Also, I am just because I continue to get questions about this. I will be launching a like six week live coaching through this like a course and weekly q&a and coaching calls. Um, April 1st that that'll start. And you can go to soberlivingriches.com riches.com to okay. kind of get into that. I will say right now it is not 100% set up but it will be in the next day or two. And I've literally already had people who have flown in to see our operation and paid us good money to help them get started. And for half the cost, it's going to be like really cheap. Um, initially, you yeah, get access what, to me and here's, everything.
1: Here's what's going to happen. Uh, Andrew, like uh, early on, people will have access to you and it won't be that expensive. But after a while, it's, you're going to be too busy. You're just yeah. going to be too busy, so access to Andrew is is going to be tougher. So, um, I love it. sober dot uh, com. Simple, yep. effective, makes sense. Got it. Yeah. Okay, man. We well, have a, a an awesome day. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, and uh, and hopefully I catch up with you sometime soon, Matt. You take yep. care. appreciate it. Thank you. Sure thing.